Tonight we're going to start a new sermon series, and we'll be slowly making our way through the greatest sermon that was ever given. That greatest sermon is not the sermon that will be given tonight, but in fact is the sermon that Jesus gave up on a Judean mountainside, often referred to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. I'm excited for this sermon series because when I first became the youth pastor here about six plus years ago, this is one of the first um, sermon series that we did. And some of you here in this room were, were here for that. And so I'm excited to spend the fall going over Jesus' words with you. So before we begin, let me pray. Uh, Father, we are mindful Lord, that you say in your word that you oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. And so, Lord, I pray now for grace for my own words, Lord, that I would not be proud in my own words or my own sayings, but, Lord, that I would rely and trust in your word. And, and Lord, I pray for all of those who are here listening, that you would give them humility, that they may hear your words and respond to the King Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. 2020 has been a pretty hard year for the news cycle. Um, It's funny, I was listening to a sermon a couple of days ago, and the sermon was preached in 2015, and the pastor started off the same way that I just started off. He said, man, 2020. 15 has been a really hard year for the news. And I just chuckled. (laughs) Like, oh, 2015 has nothing on 2020. But as we think back over the last six months, and even as we even reflect on today with all the smoke and the wildfires and the West Coast, it just seems that uh, a lot of bad things are happening. And, And not that I want to be pessimistic, but I know that the closer we draw towards this presidential election and the aftermath of that election... Um, I just feel this, this tenseness, right? And sometimes bad news, though, and bad circumstances aren't always bad, as, as weird as that is. Sometimes the Lord uses all of the things that are happening in our lives to prepare us, to get us ready. A lot of times when I was a kid, my parents would tell me something, um, especially when I was learning to drive or learning to ride a bike, they would, they would tell me all these rules. But until you're actually in the experience of what you're being taught, a lot of the rules don't make a lot of sense. And so it was when I was learning how to drive a car, they don't actually teach you to get in a car first, you have to read all these books, right? And, and kind of when I was first learning to ride my bike, my dad would always tell me, look both ways, right? But none of that really mattered as long as I was in my driveway. But I remember the first time with my bike, I went across the street and I didn't look at all and I almost got hit by a car. And my dad said, you know, in the face, firm, grip on the shoulders, you will die if you do not look both ways, right? When I finally started driving and I realized how dangerous it really is to text and drive, right? There, there's things that when people tell us, we're not quite ready to hear it, right? And I think a lot of times too, um, I, I, I look at Blake and Kimberly in the back a few 
over a year ago now, we were doing their premarital counseling. When I was doing premarital counseling, counseling you had before you were married, there's things that you talk about marriage, but they don't make sense until you're actually married, right? I say all of that because some of us at times in our own relationship with the Lord, we hear things, we know things, but we're still at a point to where, where maybe the Lord hasn't gotten us to where we actually need to hear this message. And my prayer in that long, convoluted, lengthy introduction is simply this, that, that perhaps 2020 has been the kind of things the Lord has needed to put in our lives to get us ready to hear all of what he would have to say in this great sermon of Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And so with that said, I just want to give a little bit of context to this great sermon that we're going to be looking at. Um, Jesus is the king. That's what you need to know. Jesus is the king. Why do I use those words? Well, if you look in your Bible, you know, if you notice, I mean, maybe your phone, that's fine. But if I just go a few pages over, I'm in the Old Testament, literally eight pages in my Bible. So most of my Bible is this Old Testament, okay? And the Old Testament begins with God, you know, creating the world, sin enters, there's this flood, nations begin to spread over the world, and then God, by his sovereign decree and his choice, he calls one man named Abram, and he says, through you and all of your family, I will bless the earth. I will bless all of the nations, right? And so this very dysfunctional person named Abram has a son who has a son who has 12 sons, and one of those sons being Joseph, right? And, and God is working out his whole salvation for all of human history through this family. And this is all we read about in the Old Testament. These people grow into a large sum of people, and they are in slavery, and God redeems them out of slavery in Egypt, and they eventually go to this place called the Promised Land, modern-day Israel, right? And they begin to live life. God has given them a covenant. He has, he has taught them how to live, but the problem is, is that they are really, really bad at doing it. They're really, really bad, okay? And at and, and some point, these people decide, we need a king, and so they establish kings. And there's one king in particular that I want to make point of, King David, right? King David was the only king in Israel who had a full heart for the Lord. Even though he did some of the worst sins in the Old Testament, he actually truly loved the Lord. And a very important passage in 2 Samuel chapters 6 and 7, the Lord makes a covenant with King David. Now, all this is very important for the Sermon on the Mount, okay? The covenant is this. God tells David, David, your throne is going to be forever, okay? Your throne. Now, the, the Israelites, these people from Abraham, they already believe that they are the ones whom they are going to be a nation of priests. They're going to tell the rest of the nations about God. And on top of that, they now believe that through their own people, there is going to be a king and a kingdom that shall reign forever. A king and a kingdom that shall reign forever. Now, a lot of us, we, we live in the, the here and now. We live in the Amazon days. We live in the quick. But the prophecies that God has given, 
the Israelites waited hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years for this promised king and kingdom. And the problem is, is that while they're waiting, the people of God became so entrenched in their kind of religious ways that they began to think that a king and a kingdom was going to be just like the rest of the world. They were looking for a king who was going to bark back at Rome. When we read this passage and we read the Gospels, you have to realize that, that the Jews at the time, they were under Roman oppression. Imagine the Canadians invade our country, use you know, harm and, and, and extort us and tax us and make life miserable for us, right? And we want relief. We want hope. We want the promise of someone who's going to come and get rid of those nasty Canadians, right? Imagine that, imagine that, weird illustration, but times 10. The things that Romans would do were just brutal and horrific. Matter of fact, it's so brutal and horrific that the way that they would execute someone is that they would crucify him to a cross, which is the most horrible way someone can die by execution. So it was really bad. And so the people, they're waiting, they're hoping for this king and for this kingdom. And that is where Jesus shows up on scene. The gospel is not simply the announcement that you can go to heaven one day and that your sins can be forgiven. The, the, the gospel is really the announcement of the king has arrived with his kingdom. But what we are going to learn in the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus' kingdom and his kingship is unlike anything in this world. His kingdom is a heavenly kingdom. He is the true kings above all kings. He reigns supreme above anyone else. And so what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount is he shows us what does it look like to be a citizen in this kingdom? What does it look like to be someone who follows King Jesus? What does it look like to be someone who has the attitudes and the desires and the consequences of being part of the kingdom of God? So a lot of times in the Gospels, we'll read this phrase, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. That is two separate ways of describing the same thing. It is describing the kingdom that Jesus is the king of. And so because Jesus is the true king, and because he offers all of us to come and to, to bow the knee and to receive from him mercy and grace and love, we ought to know what this kingdom is like. And so here's really why I think the, this little sermon starting tonight is so helpful. Are you ready? Because it teaches us and it describes to us what a Christian should look like what a Christian is. And here is maybe the su most surprising thing that we will find out where Jesus' words here. That the righteousness that is required of any citizen in the kingdom where Jesus is king must have a righteousness that far outseeds any religious leader, any scribe, any Pharisee, and we'll talk about that. Your righteousness must go high above 
the most morally religious, per, morally religious person you know. But here's the thing. It doesn't come from the outward. It comes from a heart that has been changed by divine grace. Now, I'm saying a lot, and a lot of us will be filled in. But tonight, as we look to this first little passage in Matthew chapter 5, the thing that we must be aware of is what are the norms? What are the kingdom values of someone who is going to be a Christian and follow Jesus? What are the norms, okay? Now, when you go to school, when you come to youth group, there's always some kind of normal culture, right? When you go to school, hopefully the norm is that you study and you pay attention, right? When you come to youth group, hopefully is the norm is we, we, we study the Bible, we, we preach, we sing, we're, we're kind to each other. And so tonight, what we're going to look at is what are the norms, what are the values of someone who is a citizen in the kingdom of God. So do me a favor, look at your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he had sat down, his disciples, said, uh, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now tonight, we're going to go over the half, the first half of all of those, what we call Beatitudes, okay? Beatitudes. And then here's my goal, here's my desire as we go over these Beatitudes, that you would know and understand what are the kingdom norms? What are the values and the attitudes of someone who follows King Jesus? So let's kind of begin. Verse one, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So the very first verse, we actually get this picture where there's a bunch of crowds and Jesus, he goes up to a mountain. Matter of fact, there's a place where they actually think in Israel where Jesus did this. And he would go up on this mountain and, and kind of the reason why they think it, because when you're sitting up above, the way the rocks are formed, the acoustics, you could talk normal length and people can pick up from a long way away. So back then without any like, microphones or, or anything like that, Jesus is constantly teaching. And so he goes up on the mountain to speak down to them. And so they came to him, verse 2, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. And what follows is by far the greatest sermon that has ever been preached. And he begins by giving them eight beatitudes, Eight Beatitudes. Now, what is a Beatitude? Now, when I was a kid growing up in church, matter of fact, when I was in high school, I memorized all these eight Beatitudes. 
And I thought that a B attitude was an attitude to be. Do you get that? These are attitudes that you should be. But a matter of fact, if that was the case, attitudes would be spelled with three T's, not two. But be, beatus is the Latin word for what? Anyone? For blessings. So the beatitudes are simply blessings. And we see that very clearly, right? Because every beatitude begins with the word what? Blessed or blessed. I always debate whether or not to say blessed or blessed, but my entire life of the section I heard blessed. Anyways, a beatitude is, is a blessing. Now, sometimes I'm curious, do any of your translations in your Bible, when you read verse 3, says, happy are the poor in spirit? Do, does anyone have a translation that maybe takes that word blessed and puts happy in? Sometimes you'll see that in a translation because they're trying to give us a better understanding. What does it mean to be blessed? What does it mean to be blessed? And I, and I actually think that happy is not a good word to understand what Jesus is saying there. Because here's the thing. You could be happy one moment, your team is winning, and the very next moment they start losing and your happiness is quickly gone, right? Happiness in our culture is very... Here and there, right? So, so what does it mean to be blessed? Well, well, blessed in the Old Testament, blessed in the Bible, really has a sense that, that you have an intimate relationship with God. Right? You look at Psalm 1. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or seat, sit in the seat of scoffers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Blessed is this intimate word where you have an intimate knowledge and relationship with the God of the universe. It, it is so much more than a simple, oh, you're just so happy. And so really, I, I mean, I love the, the, another word to kind of help understand what Jesus is saying here. So imagine we substitute the word blessed here with the word, what do you think, Blake? Congratulations. Congratulations. Right? So do me a favor. Look at verse 3 now. And instead of saying blessed, read it like this. Congratulations to the poor in spirit. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see here, Jesus is trying to teach them. He's trying to teach religiously outward people who just think that being a God follower is just doing all the right things just obeying the right things, saying the right things, doing the right things. And he's teaching them, no, 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 no. If you really want to follow the king, here are the values you must have. Here, matter of fact, blessed are you if you have these values. And so tonight we're going to go over these first four values, these first four kingdom norms. And the first one Jesus says is this. First beatitude, first blessing poor in spirit. So Jesus is up there, he's preaching, and in essence, he's saying this, you are blessed. Congratulations to you, to you who are poor in spirit. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says poor in spirit? It's very popular nowadays to think that every time Jesus is talking about the poor, that he's talking about the materially poor. 
As a matter of fact, if you look in Luke chapter 2, where Jesus kind of is describing that his earthly ministry is beginning, he quotes Isaiah and he says, I have come to preach good news to the poor. But when you look at that passage in context, you know that poor does not always refer to those who are poor materially. Okay? A lot of times in the Old Testament, poor in spirit also has the idea of, of being lowly, or actually a better word is humble. Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. Thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. What a way to describe yourself. I dwell in the high and holy place and with him also who is a contrite and humble spirit. Isaiah 66, verse two. To this man will I look, namely to him who is poor and of a contrite spirit who trembles at my word. Jesus is saying, man, to to those who are poor in spirit, congratulations, blessed are you. And he's not talking to people who simply don't have a lot of zeros behind the numbers in their bank account, right? He is talking to people who have a personal acknowledgement of their spiritual bankruptcy. To be poor in spirit is to recognize that before God, when it comes to your spiritual life, you are bankrupt that there is nothing going on here. It's an admittance of humility. It's to say, God, compare to your holiness. Compare, God, when you compare my purity to your purity, don't even look at me. God, compared to your kindness to my kindness, uh, don't even look at me. To be poor in spirit is the deepest form of Repentance. It is an utter acknowledgement that my life compared to God, zero. You know, a while ago, I um, was on Netflix and I was watching Jeopardy. I haven't watched Jeopardy in years. And there was one guy, super fascinating, like just so smart is beyond, it was so scary. And I remember him because... You can come to the Daily Devil, right? You guys know the Daily Devil, right? Of course, right? They get this question like, ooh, Daily Devil. And you can wager all of your money or you can wager nothing. And if you get it right, your money doubles. And this dude, it's just straight up like, oh, you got the Daily Devil, all of it. Okay. What female author, da-da-da-da-da, he's like... Helen Hunt just throws out the last second. It's correct. Yeah. Second round, double jeopardy. Gets a daily double again. All of it. This dude's in the lead by like 20,000 at least already. All of it. Give him the question, his face. Throws out the answer, last second again. That, 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 that's correct. Wow. I just was amazed, okay? I was amazed. Go to the final round. Before you get the question, you wager your money. This dude, all of it. 
Didn't write out how much. He just said all of it. Gets it right. I was like, dude, this guy is insane, okay? Now, I, I, I follow the season. I don't just watch the one episode. I follow the season. I go to the very end. Same guy. Daily Double. All of it. He never gets it wrong. Every time. It is amazing. Go to Netflix. Go to Jeopardy and find this guy. Season one in the, in the Netflix thing, right? I say all that because if he would have got it wrong, he would have been to zero. And that's the thing. We would have got it wrong. And we do get it wrong. And like any game show, you hear the wah, wah, wah. Bankrupt, zero, zilch. That is what is indicative of every human heart before God. We like to compare ourselves to other people. We like to look at that person and say, well, I'm doing pretty good. I'm nicer than them. I'm not that bad of a person. I'm pretty good. But when you compare your, your spiritual life, what's happening to God, Jesus is saying, if you're poor in spirit, congratulations. You get it. You understand the gospel. You understand what it means to be a Christian. That being a Christian is not someone who stands up here morally superior to everyone else. A Christian should be the most humble person of all because they recognize this. I am poor in spirit. I am poor in spirit. And so Jesus gives an illustration later in the Gospel of Matthew. He, 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 he describes the situation. He says, a Pharisee, modern-day pastor, imagine a pastor goes to church to pray, and so does, what's a good example of a modern-day tax collector? IRS. IRS, oh, I was going to say someone who's really hated. I was tempted to say Donald Trump, but... Um, Imagine like uh, the most hated person in society goes up to pray and the pastor goes up to pray. The pastor, Pharisee, says, God, thank you that I'm not like everyone else. You know, the modern day Christian prayer is, God, thank you that I'm not like other Christians. I actually care about the environment. I actually care about social justice. God, I read my Bible. I actually do what I'm supposed to do. But yet, the tax collector is on his knees, in the corner, beating his chest, tears coming down his face, soaking his beard. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, don't even look at me. God, I'm not even worthy for you to look at me. Be merciful, God, be merciful. And Jesus says, which one of these men went home justified? You know, he, kind of, he leaves them speechless. But that, that's what it looks like to be poor in spirit. It's like the story of, of, of Gideon, the judge, who said, Lord, without you, God, I, if you don't come with me, I'm, you're on my side, nothing good will happen. And so D.A. Carson says this, poverty of spirit is a full, honest, factual, conscious, and conscientious recognition before God of personal, moral unworth. And the reason why I'm taking so long on this first beatitude is because the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is giving illustration after illustration to help 
all of us, get rid of the delusion that we are self-righteous moral people. He is going to help us to see again and again and again just how spiritually bankrupt we are. So look at the promise, though, he gives in this first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In essence, here's the promise. Admit that you have nothing, and you will get everything. As long as you know you bring nothing, you get it all. You get the whole kingdom, right? We currently live in a kingdom. I like America. It's a good country. It has its problems. It has its issues, right? But there are, there are severe injustices that happen in any, you know, modern country. But imagine a kingdom where every citizen cared about the good of their neighbor. Imagine a kingdom where the king was so good that he laid down his life that, this, that those citizens may live. Imagine a kingdom where there's no extortion, no childless, no, no child is, goes to bed hungry or doesn't have parents. Imagine a, a kingdom where marriages are intact, where the unborn get to see the light of day. Imagine a kingdom where everything is as it should be. Only the kingdom where Jesus is king cannot happen. And we will one day see that kingdom if we are poor in spirit. Is this the humility that you have with your sin? Is being a Christian just a theoretical thing? Like, okay, technically, yes, all are sinners. Therefore, since I'm a human, I've done bad things. Therefore, yes, you're right, I'm a sinner. Or is it a deep, conscious conviction that I am poor in spirit? And that's what leads us to the very next one. Verse four, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So this, this beatitude, this blessing, this congratulations naturally flows from the very first one. So mournfulness is sometimes kind of seen as like the emotional counterpoint to the first beatitude. So I, I think we can all recognize, okay, Aaron, you kind of beat us over the head of that first one. I get it. There's nothing happening here. I'm spiritually bankrupt. Um, spiritually speaking, I'm not like that guy in Jeopardy who gets it right every time. That, that ain't me. I would fail. Okay, I get that. But, but more than just understanding intellectually, Jesus is saying, congratulations, blessed are you if you mourn over this. You see, sometimes people read this verse and they think Christians have to be the, the sad ones who are always constantly a little moody and emotional, right? Like <clears throat> maybe youth group kids or the kids who kind of came up with, you know, the goth movement, we're just always so angst. We have to be so sad. We can't have any fun. You know, Christians are always known to being the prudent ones. But this is not what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying, hey, congratulations if you cry a lot. Right, some of you are probably like, that'd be awesome. <laughs> that'd be awesome, right? I'm a, I'm a, I'm a crier. I, I used to cry a lot. I don't, my daughter the other day, Daddy, do adults ever cry? 
Oh, honey. Oh, honey. So what, what is this morning talking about? What is this morning? The morning is the man who understands the blackness of his sins when he compares it to the moral purity of God. So sometimes as a Christian, I just have to realize that there are much wiser and smarter Christians who will say what I want to say much more uh, beautifully and eloquently. And so I'm just going to read you this really long block quote by D.A. Carson. Um, so, so here's what he says about this, this beatitude. The Christian, Christian is to be the truest realist. Okay? He reasons that death is there and must be faced. God is there and will be known by all as savior or judge. Sin is there and it is unspeakably ugly and black in the light of God's purity. Eternity is there and every living, living human being is rushing toward it. God's revelation is there and the alternatives it presents will come to pass. Either life or death, pardon or condemnation, heaven or hell. All of these realities will not go away. The man who lives in light of them and rightly assesses himself and his world in light of them cannot but mourn. In essence, what he's saying is the true Christian needs to be a realist. There actually is a heaven and a hell. There actually is a savior who is also judge. And they recognize that many people, most people, will meet Christ not as savior, but as judge. Who will not wake up to heaven, but will wake up to hell. They, they realize that. They're, they're not, they don't try to shove that away. And because they realize that, they mourn. He mourns for the sins and blasphemies of his own nation. He mourns for the erosion of the very concept of truth. He mourns over the greed, the cynicism, the lack of integrity. He mourns that there are so few mourners. See, if you want to know whether or not you are catching the values of Jesus, do the injustices of the world prick your heart? Does human trafficking break your heart? Do dysfunctional homes and, and, and poverty and malnutrition to, and babies dying and preventable, does that break your heart? Does that like, do something to you? Does the fact that no one seems to care about the sin of the world, does that also break your heart? Or it just seems like no one anymore cares about loving their neighbor. We mourn these things. We grieve them and we, we cry, oh, Christ, come. Tarry no longer. Come, return, King Jesus. Make all things right. That, that's what it looks like to mourn. And the beauty of this promise, this is maybe one of my favorite Beatitudes because of the promise. Look what it says. Blessed are those who mourn. Congratulations if you mourn. Why? you will be comforted. You see, the Christian is one who recognizes their moral impurity, but once they come to know this king and what this king does, here's what they come to learn. 
that this king has come precisely for this very reason, to save them from their sins. That he would die on the cross for their sins. That he would take the punishment that was rightfully theirs and he would put it upon himself. And he would offer forgiveness, eternal life. He would share with us his very inheritance from his father so that we, sinners, people who stand no shot, who are morally bankrupt, can have life. You see, when you truly understand your spiritual bankruptcy and you mourn over that, but you understand what Christ offers you, do you know what that does? It brings a comfort that nothing else can bring. That's even why, you know, the Heidelberg Catechism, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. You mourn over your sin. Do you not just recognize, okay, yeah, we're all sinners, we get that point. Does it do something in you? And so Jesus goes on and giving these congratulations, these beatitudes. And the third one, he says, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek. Now, now here's the thing. A lot of people kind of compare meekness and poverty in spirit and kind of say, well, they're more or less the same thing. Meekness is not a word that we hear a lot in our society, right? Um, just as societies grow and change, the vernacular of a society is constantly changing, right? Um, I might say to one of you, you know, it's been a hot minute since I've seen you, right? Someone a thousand years from now reading that slang, like, what in the world did they mean by that? It's been a hot minute, right? Part of that is just language. It's always kind of progressing. It's always changing. But meekness is a really good word. And I think it's a word we should use more, right? So if poverty in spirit has more to do with a person's own assessment before how they stand with God, meekness... It's kind of a right view of self compared to other people, compared to your neighbor. And so let me just kind of be a little more quick because I've, I've spent a lot of time on these first two points. But meekness is the idea that I'm going to control my desires so that I can live for other people's interests above my own. So I'll give you two quick examples of the Old Testament. Abraham, who I mentioned before, he had a nephew named Lot, right? He allowed Lot to pick out his own spot where he wanted to go live, and and Lot picked the better place. And more than that, when the Lord was going to come and punish Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham truly desired and cared and loved and cared about the interests of his nephew. More than that, probably the best example of someone who is to be meek is Moses. Now think about this. Moses once killed a guy, murdered him. But the Bible describes him, other than Jesus, as being the most meek person who ever were to live. When Moses was the leader of Israel, wandering around the desert, constantly he was being attacked by his own people. They tried to stage a coup to get rid of his leadership. They they constantly grumbled. They constantly complained. But what did he do? 
He silently kept reserved and he kept serving the people and leading the people. If you want a good definition of meekness, here it is. Do you constantly try to defend yourself? Do you always have to have the last word in an argument? Are you always thinking about what people can do for you rather than what you can do for others? Are you constantly walking into a room gauging, can this person give me what I'm hoping to get? See, a lot of times people think meekness is just kind of being like the, the floor mat where people can just step all over you and walk all over you. But no, meekness, listen very carefully, meekness is the firm resolve that I would rather suffer than sin. I would rather you scream your head off me and as much as I want to just, you know, give you the finger right back or whatever your temptation is, I'm going to sit here and be patient and be kind. That is, listen, meekness is not how the world operates. The world operates with climb that corporate ladder, do whatever you can to get ahead, step on whoever you can to fulfill your dreams. Matter of fact, we live in a day and age where so much time and money is spent on entertainment. Just getting you to think about what you want to do, how you can be happy. But Jesus here is trying to say, no, in my kingdom, to be a Christian, to be someone who says, I follow King Jesus, is someone who was amazed at the fact that God could ever think of them as well as he does, and also that other people would think of me well. So one commentator says this, we are to leave everything, ourselves, our rights, our cause, our whole future in the hands of God, especially if we feel we are suffering unjustly. Make this as the firm resolve that I would rather suffer than sin. Just think about the last couple of weeks in your relationships. Are you constantly and easily offended? Do you have to defend yourself always? Do you find yourself mumbling and grumbling and, and getting a little back and forth with your parents? Jesus is saying, hey, my people, those who follow me, they are meek. As a matter of fact, if you even want the best example of meekness, when Jesus was being, when he was on trial for his crucifixion, Jesus never did anything wrong. He was completely sinless, never said anything wrong, never did anything that would justify execution. But what did he do? Did he constantly defend himself to Pilate? He would rather suffer and sin. And so it is with us as Christians. We realize at times that means that we might not get what we want. We might have to let go of desires. We might have to let go of things going our way. But here is the promise. There's always a promise to the blessing. Here it is. They shall inherit the earth. And this is maybe the most oxymoron of all of the, the blessings because the meek typically are the ones who never inherit the earth. They're the ones who never get the raises or the promotions or, or all of the attention and the popularity and success. But here is what is so important to, to recognize about the blessings in the kingdom of heaven. 
They are now, but not yet. That not until Christ fully comes in all of his glory and consummates a brand new earth and heaven. But I love what this person said. Um, let me see where my notes it is. I, I really thought it was a great way. 50 billion trillion years into eternity. I just thought that was interesting. 50 billion trillion years into eternity, God's people will still be rejoicing that this beatitude is literally true. The reason why we do not have to always insist on our own way or try to get what we want, why we can be meek, is because we know that literally one day we will inherit the earth. That in God's kingdom, we will have everything that we could ever have hoped for and more. So we don't need to be greedy and push our way in front of other people. I made it through three of the four. That's pretty good, right? I hope we know that we could spend one night going over, you know, one of these beatitudes. But let me just kind of close by, by saying this. We just got done as a youth group, most of you are here for it, of going through the book of Hebrews. Going through the book of Hebrews. And, and one of the, I feel like one of the applications that came up so much in Hebrews was, are you kind of just going through the motions with the Christian faith? Right? There are a lot of people who it's really easy to come, say you're a Christian, kind of say the creed, look the part, but, but slowly, what we saw in Hebrews is that people begin to drift slowly, slowly away from Christ until they have no recognizable fruit at all or aren't Christians at all anymore. And I think one of the reasons is, why that's the case, is because far too many people don't actually even understand what it means to follow Jesus. What does it mean to follow King Jesus? And what we must always remember, what we must always learn, is that following Jesus is never so much about what we do for him, how much good I'm doing for the king, but really, it's about people who recognize how much they need the king. That they recognize that they're poor in spirit and that they need King Jesus. They recognize just how sad and horrible the earth is without this king. They mourn over their own sin. They mourn about the sins of the world. And more than this, they, they, they learn to live their lives in such a way that because this king promises us so much, that we can live lives now where we don't always have to be worried about me and I, but I can joyfully submit my life to the service of others by being meek. You see, these blessings, these congratulations are helping us see what does it really mean to be a Christian, to follow Jesus. And I hope that as we continue on next week and, and for the weeks to come, that we will continue to get a better picture of just how good this king really is. Let's pray. Lord, we ask now that you would bless us in this next week, Lord. Bless us, God, with giving us hearts that are poor in spirit. Bless us, Lord, with giving us hearts and minds that mourn over our sin and mourn over 
all of the injustices and the, the hurts and the failings of this life. Lord, bless us by helping us to remember your son, Jesus, who was meek, who would rather suffer than sin, and who did suffer, and who bled, and who died, so that we, Lord, can be the recipients of such a great kingdom, that we can be citizens in a kingdom whose end will never come. To bless these students, Lord, with faith, help them to continue every single day, look to the King, look to Christ, look to Jesus, that they may receive these Beatitudes. We pray this all in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.